0: Hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its 10th season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. Silas House knows about the power of stories. He's a fiction writer. He still lives where he grew up, on the outskirts of Corbin, Kentucky.
1: Well, um, Corbin is uh, what I think of as, as being right at the the gateway to to Appalachian Kentucky, it it has you know you can see these beautiful mountains, but it's not so deep in the mountains that it's isolated. We're right here on the interstate, and the railroad's always been a big part of Corbin and sort of kept it connected with the larger world. And um, so it's in the foothills, and I think Corbin identifies very much as a as a little Appalachian town, you know, and um, and are, are proud of that heritage a little town that prides itself on, on being friendly and
0: clean and all those things, you know. Silas drives me around Corbin in his pickup.
1: This is the original Sanders Cafe, which is the first Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um, and Colonel Sanders lived, I don't know, two or three blocks back through there. And actually, we, there are a lot of people that come. You wouldn't believe the number of people that come to get their picture made right there.
0: Colonel Sanders opened his first cafe in the 1930s. But there's another defining event in Corbin's history that the local tourist commission does not talk about. There's no plaque for this one. The town's official histories make no reference to the riot by the white mob. So it's, you know, amazing the ramifications
1: of something that happened in 1919 and how, you know, that can reverberate so many years later And, and Affects people that don't even know the story.
0: I'm John Bewin, it's Seen on Radio, part nine of our series, Seeing White, exploring the meaning of whiteness and how it works in the world. Once in a while, you come across an American town or county that has long been virtually all white, even though surrounding communities have substantial populations of color. Chances are that's not an accident. Between the 1860s and the 1920s or so, in a whole bunch of rural places, white mobs violently expelled virtually all their black neighbors. Ten years ago, I read a book about some of those communities. Out of all the places where such a thing happened, including Forsyth County, Georgia, Lawrence County, Missouri, Boone and Sharp counties in Arkansas, Vermilion County, Indiana, I decided to go to Corbin, Kentucky and talk to people because it seemed like a place where the silence was especially deafening. If you've been listening to Seeing White, you'll notice this story is similar in spirit to our Little War on the Prairie episode about my hometown in Minnesota. It's a story not just about what happened, but about that silence and what it says about white America.
2: I think that the, the first time I realized that there was something wrong with where I was from. I think that I was probably around six or seven at the time.
0: Laura Smith was in her twenties when she and I met up in Corbin ten years ago. She has long blonde hair. Her family has been in Corbin for generations. Laura says when she was a child, she and her mother were driving to Lexington when they ran out of gas.
2: um, This really nice man stopped and picked us up and said, I'll take you to the gas station and and bring you back, and he was African American. And we got in the car, and he's, you know, just talking to us, talking to my mom, and he finally came around, where are y'all from? And my mom, you know, just looked over and said, we're from Williamsburg.
0: Meaning Williamsburg, Kentucky which is 17 miles from Corbin.
2: And I was shocked <laughs> because my mom was lying. I remember sitting in the back seat and just kind of taking that all in and the gear starting to turn and just being like, okay, there, there's something not okay with telling people, especially, you know, African-American people that were from Corbin.
3: Well, years back, it was very, very sad situation in Corbin. My name is Laverda Boos. I was born in Knox County 19 and 27.
0: Mrs. Booz lives in Barberville, 15 miles southeast of Corbin. It's another nearby town like Williamsburg where there's long been a significant black population. But Corbin is the railroad hub for this part of Kentucky. So in the days of passenger trains, that meant black folks going home to Barberville had to use the Corbin station.
3: They would be scared to even get off the train. Face facts, it was a very dangerous situation to come to Corbin, African-American. It really was.
0: Mrs. Booz is not afraid of Corbin anymore. On a Saturday in winter, she's sitting in an apartment there while her grandniece, Tammy Rogers, gets her hair styled by her friend David Sloan.
4: This
0: This is David Sloan's apartment. He was one of about 10 African Americans living in Corbin when I visited in 2007, out of about 8,000 people in the town. David moved to town in 2005 to escape Biloxi, Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. He met Tammy Rogers at a mostly black Baptist church in Barberville.
5: When David said that he was living in Corbin, I thought that was quite uh, strange. I uh, laughed, (laughs) actually.
0: (laughs) David didn't know until he arrived in town that he was moving to a virtually all-white place with a notorious, if mostly whispered, racial history.
6: When I first came up here, I had a little toddler walk up to me, and rubbed me on the back of the hand and looked at his hand and I told him he didn't rub off, it's permanent. He wasn't used to seeing black people.
0: The main reason a child in Corbin wouldn't be used to seeing black people dates back almost a century. In 1919, the race climate in the U.S. was tense and violent.
5: It's important not to underplay the severity and the extent of the oppression, of sort of white violence, of economic oppression, of sort of legal structures.
0: Adrienne Lentz-Smith is a history professor now at Duke. She wrote Freedom Struggles, a book about African Americans during World War I. Before the Great War, in the decades after the Civil War, she says, Black Americans were in crisis. The short period of Reconstruction, which allowed black political and economic participation like never before, was crushed between 1890 and 1910. Southern states rewrote their laws and constitutions, essentially locking black Americans out of citizenship.
5: Um, you get this period, I think, first where African Americans are just trying to figure out what on earth happened, and then how they live within it without being attacked, you know, and so...
0: In the early um, 19-teens, she says, white supremacy had a triumphant hold on the country under President Woodrow Wilson. But the First World War shook things up and created new openings. Of the two million U.S. soldiers sent to the battle in Europe, almost 400,000 were black.
5: It gives African Americans a way to reassert rhetorically their place in the nation. You know, we are loyal Americans. Um, We have served in every military conflict in American history since before there was an America, and we will serve in this one again. The sort of idea that it's a war for democracy, for sort of the defense of people to sort of deciding their own fate, gives African Americans a way into saying, oh really, if we're fighting for democracy abroad, what are we doing at home?
0: At the same time, she says, the Great War slowed immigration to a trickle. So cities outside the South, with their industries ramped up for the war effort, needed labor they weren't getting from overseas. Between 1915 and 1920 alone, hundreds of thousands of black people moved out of the Deep South to take those jobs. Seeing African-Americans assert themselves in these ways to try to improve their lives didn't go over well with a lot of white people
5: in some ways, white laborers defined themselves as worthy people or, you know, one step up on some sort of ladder of status precisely because they had black laborers as one step down, as the sort of counterpoint, Um, what W.E.B. Du Bois calls a psychological wage, you know, that white supremacy robs working class whites of so much, but the one thing that they have is the guarantee that black people still occupy a space below them.
0: Lynchings, which had declined in the first years of the 20th century, headed back upward during and after the war. Dozens of them reported every year.
5: You know, these are only the lynchings that we know about. You know, these are in the
0: East St. Louis riot of 1917, white men turned on black people over labor and racial grievances. Forty African Americans and eight whites were killed. By 1919, things were even worse.
5: What happens in Kentucky exists in the context of the Red Summer, which is a summer of race riots at minimum 25 in places as far-flung as Chicago and Longview, Texas, or Charleston, South Carolina.
0: In Corbin, Kentucky, the 1910 census found 60 black residents. By 1919, another 200 or so black men were working in Corbin on temporary crews paving streets and expanding the railroad yard. Then, that autumn. Corbin Times, Wednesday night occurred a highway robbery near the C.V. Bridge when A.F. Thompson, switchman, 34 years old, was held up by two Negroes as he was nearing home from his work. The day after this alleged mugging of a white man on October 29th, word passed in town that something was about to happen. These are excerpts from affidavits signed a few months later, by longtime black residents Alex Ty and John Turner. At about 11 o'clock on the
6: night of October 30th, my wife, Anna Ty called me to look at a crowd of men going in the direction of John Turner's house.
5: They swore us and said, by God, we are going to run all Negroes out of this town tonight.
6: I saw Steve Rogers on the porch of the Littles' home hammering on the door, calling on the crowd to break in the door and bring them out and hang them if they didn't come out.
5: The firemen. Bob Smith held a gun to my head.
6: So the three of us got through the back window and went over the top of the hill in the back of my house.
5: My wife and I were taken to the depot and herded there with a large number of Negroes and compelled to leave Corbin.
6: By the end of this, all but uh, three blacks had been sent packing. The mob leaders decided that these three who had been there for years and were harmless uh, in their view, they could stay. Everybody else had to leave.
0: Journalist Elliot Jaspin wrote that book I mentioned earlier. It's called Buried in the Bitter Waters, The Hidden History of Racial Cleansing in America. Jaspin spent five years researching places like Corbyn, places where white people violently expelled virtually all the black people in their communities, at some point between the Civil War and the 1920s. He tells of more than a dozen expulsions in places from Central Texas through the Ozarks and parts of Indiana into Appalachia and Northern Georgia. Notice these places are not in the Deep South. There, African Americans often outnumbered white people and their labor was essential to Deep South economies. Jaspin found most of the expulsions happened where black people were a smaller minority they were expendable, he says. It's kind of an arc that goes across the United States. The Counties are typically uh, rural
6: along the Mason-Dixon line. It, in a sense, it's become America's family secret. I found so many that I eventually had to limit the story that I eventually wrote to only those counties where the racial cleansing had been successful, which is to say it remains white or virtually all white today.
0: In Corbin, the railroad yard is still there, just off the charming Main Street. So is the depot, where a couple hundred African Americans boarded trains at gunpoint on that night in 1919. In the Corbin Public Library, you can find this article in the local newspaper archives. Corbin Times, November 7, 1919. In the matter of news, there is nothing that the Times can add to what has already been said about the terrible calamity that befell Corbin last Thursday night in the way of that mob. I took a copy of that article to Don Estep. He was publisher of Corbin's current weekly paper, the News Journal. Estep is a lifelong Corbin resident. He was 67 when I met him. He told me he'd never seen the article before and had always heard a more benign version of what happened in 1919. Well, until i had read this, I didn't know there was a mob spirit. But they're openly in this
1: article written in 1919 calling it a mob our name has gone out. Very, very interesting part of this, written in 1919, I think, is this. Our name has gone out over the nation with a black spot that can never be removed. Wow. As a way to deal with this
6: very uncomfortable history, what I see again and again, and it's certainly in Corbin, is that they develop a fable.
0: Author Elliot Jaspin.
6: In Corbin, the fable was that there was a black work crew that came into town that caused trouble and they were told to leave.
0: The mayor of Corbin is Willard McBurney, a retired Postal Service manager. People in my peer group, from, they said they had
7: heard from their grandfathers or from their dads, and it was just really passed on down from, generation to, from generations. And that, that's really the, the gist of, of my knowledge of this.
0: And what version? What
7: was it? I mean, I, well, I heard that uh, there was a uh, a group w- uh, one night that uh, uh, forced a bunch of uh, uh, the uh, blacks out of Corbin, and uh, uh, but then uh, I've heard that a lot of that it wasn't to that severity that you know they were the, they were employed by the railroad company and they did move
0: some out but then they brought him back in two weeks later to finish the job. That is, the railroad brought in another crew of black workers. In this version of the story, that's proof that the expulsion was not about race. In fact, in affidavits collected for the state's criminal investigation several months later, white eyewitnesses backed up the story told by the African-American man. They said the armed mob announced its intention to rid Corbin of black people, and that black baggage workers who tried to return a few days later were threatened and left again.
6: I know that some of the Negroes who were compelled to leave Corbin were property owners and had always been considered peaceful and law-abiding.
0: I do not consider that it would be safe for any of the Negroes to return to Corbin, Kentucky at the present time. As a result of the investigation in 1919, a man named Steve Rogers, who had worked for the railroad, was convicted of leading the mob and spent two years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary. A lot of people in Corbin say there's no point in dwelling on something that happened so long ago. That's how Mayor McBurney feels. But at the same time, he admits the expulsion haunts his town and its image. Uh, I had to go to a marketing meeting in uh, Cincinnati. McBurney remembers an incident in the late 1980s when he was working for the postal service. There was probably over 100
7: of us in this meeting from various places.
0: The main speaker at the meeting was an African-American who'd flown in from Chicago. And he was uh, going through how our plans would do this and that. And if any
7: of us had any problems, he said, hey, I'll personally come down and work with you on that. But he says, and he pointed his finger at me, he said, I won't come to Carbon. That's what he called Corbin. He said, I will not come to Corbin. And that really made me feel small. To be singled out with a group of people like that, I knew that he had heard of the stigma that has followed Corbin. And I mean, there was someone from Chicago.
0: For decades after the race riot, Corbin was known as a white man's town with a visible Klan presence a town that would tolerate only a token handful of black people. The criminal investigation did find that several whites stood up to the mob, a few protected black people in their homes or businesses. And as you heard, the local newspaper condemned the expulsion at the time. Journalist Elliot Jaspin says most people in Corbin and the other towns where racial expulsions took place don't know this part of their history either.
6: When you have the fable the heroic acts of the people in the community are lost. They lose their heroes.
0: Writer Silas House thinks white people in a place like Corbin are especially reluctant to talk about their town's troubled past because of worries about eastern Kentucky stereotypes.
1: Well, people think we're all illiterate, ignorant hillbillies who are also racist and misogynistic and homophobic.
0: But the decades of silence from Corbin's leaders may have backfired. Silas says by failing to publicly own up to the 1919 expulsion, Corbin has missed the chance to move past it. It was certainly talked about when I was a child and, and when I was a teenager,
1: and people still talk about it. They probably don't talk about it to outsiders, but I think it's important to talk about for several reasons for uh, number one, you know, just to to shed light on something that awful happening. Number two, it's it's important to know about the place you're from. Storytelling is important and And number three, it's important to talk about because I don't think that we live in that kind of place anymore and, you know, to just maybe shed some light on how different it is today.
0: On the edge of Corbin, a congregation more than a century old meets in a sprawling, much newer building. Senior Pastor Tim Thompson of the First United Methodist Church says in August 2005, he was sitting in his office with some of his staff.
4: We're watching the news. Man, this thing has just wiped out New Orleans and Biloxi and all that coastline down there.
0: Thompson and his staff decided to turn their church into emergency housing for people who'd lost their homes to Hurricane Katrina.
4: I went before the whole church on Sunday morning and said, here's what we want to do. We, we, we raised the issue. We're certain some of the folks that are going to come and live with us are going to be black. We're certain of that. Um, and we just said, whatever, whoever comes, we don't care. It doesn't matter. We'll deal with it. It'll be fine. Um, And so the congregation said, okay.
0: The church hosted about 25 people from the Gulf Coast. They stayed in the church for weeks or months. About half were African American. Our hope was that maybe a few
4: of the black folks that came would stay here and live and become a Corbinite, live in Corbin, and essentially become pioneers. So 15 or 20 years from now, There's a growing population of black people in this town.
0: But a year and a half later, almost all of the dozen or so African-American guests from the Gulf Coast had gone back home or moved on to places like Louisville or Lexington. All except David Sloan, who we heard at the top of the piece cutting his friend's hair. David came to Corbin from Biloxi.
6: I'm thankful that the church had the, the vision to open up their doors to bring us up here. I'm, a, I'm an adventurer. I'm a party. i I'll try anything at once.
0: When I met David, he was working in a cabinet factory in Corbin. He said he'd gotten some cold looks in town, and he thought unfair treatment in a couple of previous jobs. A lot of the people up here are stuck back in the 60s. But he said Corbin had not lived up to its old image as a sundown town, a place where a black person better get out before dark or else. His 79 year old friend from nearby Barberville, Laverta Booz, agrees. She told me these days she likes to shop in Corbin.
3: It used to be that you could walk on the street. Oh, that go a nigga down the street. You would hear this in Corbin, Kentucky. But now it seems to be much, much better. Now you can walk into a store you can get a nice smile.
0: Still, some people in Corbin say their town has a lot of work to do in putting its hateful image to rest, starting with some straight talk about what really happened in 1919.
8: You were here 10 years ago, and I don't think that you would recognize downtown if you came back.
0: Laura Smith, the Corbin native who told the story of her mother's lie about where they lived. I checked in with her on the phone the other day, and she recorded herself. Laura's now 38. She lives in Egypt, Kentucky. Egypt?
8: Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, isn't that a good place name? (laughs)
0: Egypt is just 45 minutes from Corbin, her parents still live there and she's in pretty close touch with what's happening in Corbin.
8: Uh, We have a farm-to-table restaurant downtown uh, that features really great regional food as well as craft beers, we have a really great coffee shop.
0: Laura says with the coal economy's decline, which affects the important railroad business in Corbin, the town has had other economic successes. A new farmer's market led to other foodie businesses and the coffee shop, all owned by younger people who'd lived elsewhere and came back home.
8: Um, And they tend to be pretty progressive, too. So, you know, when I walk into, you know, a downtown restaurant now, um, it's... You know, one of the surprising things is that, one, it's packed and there's actually people back downtown, which is great to see. Um, And two, it's a lot of young people and it's very much a diverse crowd, people of color.
0: Laura doesn't know of any meaningful change in the actual black population in Corbin. She thinks those diverse people she sees downtown are mostly just in for the day from the surrounding area.
8: College students and then there's also folks who are driving down from Lexington and places like that or tourists um, who are, you know, staying in the area or on their way to other places, so I'm not sure. But in
0: the town known as the home of Colonel Sanders, you can now get a cup of fair trade coffee and a local restaurant declared itself a sanctuary in the face of the trump administration's travel ban on muslim countries corbin's vibe is increasingly inclusive as laura puts it which makes it all the more unfortunate in her opinion that the town still doesn't acknowledge its troubled past there's still no public marker of any kind about what happened in 1919 in 2007 the same year a version of my piece about corbin aired on npr Laura and a young newspaper reporter in town organized a display about the racial expulsion at the public library, showing some of the documents you heard about in this piece, those affidavits about the race riot. You
8: know, court proceeding documents, um, clips from the local newspaper and also some of the national newspapers that covered it, and those were put on display um, at the public library for anybody to view. Um, You know, there weren't... Uh, You know, there wasn't like a public dialogue around it, but they were publicly presented.
0: Also in 2007, the Corbin city government organized a lecture series on the history of the town featuring a local historian. Laura went to those lectures and was disappointed.
8: You know, it kind of went to from the founding and kind of early, early history of the town to jumping forward to, you know, the mid to late 1920s. Um, so there was a, a sizable gap um, of history that wasn't talked about, including, including the year 1919.
0: Today, the city of Corbin's website features a history page. It includes some colorful details about the town's labor history. It even mentions some violence among railroad and timber workers in the late 19th century that it says gave the town a rough reputation at the time. But about the expulsion of hundreds of black people in 1919 and the town's image problems as a result of that, nothing.
8: As somebody who's from a town that You know, where a significant race riot occurred. I think it's incredibly important that we um, air that and talk about it and have constructive dialogue around it, um, you know, and memorialize it in some way. Um, And I think that while there are folks that would think that would be detrimental to the town, I actually think it would be incredibly beneficial for the town. Um, you know, and the good efforts that are happening there for that to happen.:
0: Big thanks to our editor on the ongoing "Seeing White" series, Loretta Williams. My collaborator and frequent conversation partner, Chenjerai Kumanika, got this episode off. Well, scheduling issues and whatnot. We couldn't quite pull it off this time, but he'll be back we got a number of juicy, seeing-white episodes in the works. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Music this time by Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin MacLeod, Lee Rosevere, and sometimes why. Follow me on Twitter, at Seen on Radio, like our Facebook page. On our website, seenonradio.org, there's a link to Elliot Jaspin's book on racial cleansings, Buried in the Bitter Waters and to the Corbin City government's take on local history. Seen on Radio comes to you from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.